despite doing everything I possibly could, what resulted was a really horrific plane crash. So at 21 years old, I was cut from the wreckage of an aeroplane. I was placed in a helicopter, flown to hospital, but I was actually flown there as the only survivor, which was the toughest part of the whole experience. I was lost. I was directionless. I was unhappy and I couldn't work out why. And it felt like for me that I'd spent years after the accident rebuilding a puzzle and it was a thousand piece puzzle and I was 999 pieces into this puzzle. There was one piece missing and that missing puzzle piece caused me serious grief. And it was a really, really hard time in my life. The the darkest point in my life, that pink Cadillac became just this most incredible representation of the power of joy. And it changed my life. Hello and welcome to the Mindset Matters podcast. I'm Dr. Gemma Lee Roberts. When we look at what it takes to achieve our goals, we know that our mindset matters. But once you succeed, what happens next? In this episode, Ryan Campbell chats about achieving a world record by flying around the world solo, which made him the first teenager and youngest person to complete such an incredible journey. We speak about the resilience and determination he had at a young age to be able to turn his dreams into a reality, demonstrated by the fact he got his pilot's license before he could legally learn to drive. His solo flight is one of childhood adventure dreams, but not without its own challenges, from Ryan questioning if he could do it, to navigating weather, bribing officials and fueling logistics. But after his incredible success, two years later, Ryan's story took a turn. He survived a horrific plane crash as the sole survivor and had a very long road to recovery ahead of him. But it was after his physical recovery that he had the hardest mental challenge to overcome. One of feeling disorientated and lost, and that's something I feel many of us have felt at different times in our lives. Ryan shares a great analogy here of seeing himself as a puzzle with a missing piece and the journey of acknowledging what that piece is and how he found it. If you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed chatting to Ryan, check out the Mindset Matters Hub where there are resources to help you build your resilience. Ryan has an incredible story to tell and demonstrates how focus, determination and resilience can allow you to reach your dreams. There's lots about Ryan's own mindset we can all learn from. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I am really excited about our conversation today, knowing a little bit about your story, which I know you're going to share today as well, and thinking about how that relates to my world of research and thinking about the topic of resilience. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. And there's so many questions I want to ask you, and I there's so much I want to learn from your experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even just prior to the show, having a quick chat and, and kind of getting to know each other, this is a massive, big conversation that could go on for days. But um, I'm excited to see where the world's collides. Me too. And honestly, I feel like this could go on for days as well. We'll try, we'll try and keep it succinct <laughs> for people. But I'm pretty sure there'll be lots that we'll be catching up on on the topic as well. So 
I would love to dive straight in and ask you a bit about your story. Can you tell me about your story of flying around the world solo? Yeah, a good old adventure story. Something that seemed like a good idea at the time. I wouldn't recommend it. I'll say that as a disclaimer before I get into it. But um, yeah, grew up in Australia, normal Aussie kid. Uh, my dad was a farmer and he was a local milkman. He was a, a truck driver at one point in his career. Uh, my mum was a stay-at-home mum. I was the youngest of three boys. Normal Aussie family. Uh, originally grew up on a farm, moved to the beach. You know, I was just a standard kind of, you know, Aussie clan. And when I was six years old, we jumped on a plane. First ever overseas trip for my family. Took off out of Sydney and flew to a place called Vanuatu, which was an island in the Pacific. And that process of flying to Vanuatu and flying back from Vanuatu changed my life as a six-year-old kid because it basically allowed me to discover my passion, which was aviation. And from that day on, I wanted to grow up and become a pilot. Uh, that never went away. Through uh, high school, trying to work out with my careers counsellor how I was going to make that happen. Um, it led me to 14 years old, working after school and on the weekends to save all my money. Uh, I started taking flying lessons every two weeks with the goal to fly an airplane solo on the very first day that I uh, was legally allowed to, which was my 15th birthday. I managed to do that. That sparked a want to not just continue my flying, but to do everything at the youngest possible age. So 16 years old, I'm taking my buddies from school, uh, flying with me in the airplane, but I still couldn't <gasps> drive them to the airport or drive them home at that point. Um, wow. At 17, I had a private pilot's license. At 18, I had a commercial pilot's license. Yeah, crazy. This whole idea of flying before you can drive was pretty wild, but flying was my entire life. I lived and breathed everything about aviation. That led to reading a newspaper article about a young kid who at age 23, an American man, flew a single-engine airplane, a tiny four-seat single-engine airplane solo around the world. And in doing so, he became the youngest person to have flown solo around the world. The record before him was 37 and he was 23. And I was just kind of blown away. It was kind of a mix between modern-day record-breaking, but then the old pioneering days of aviation of all those incredible pilots who crossed the oceans and pushed the limits and kind of explored the world. And I was so in love with those stories. And then this was a modern day version of that. And all of a sudden I'm 17 and I'm reading this article and I've got a private pilot's license. And I had that, that question, that sense of wonder of like, could I do that? You know, normal Aussie kid, normal Aussie family, could I pull that off? And what that sparked at 17 was a two year journey of planning, training, preparing and and fundraising and uh, I had to learn to fly at night learn to fly in cloud and build my skills as a pilot but I had to ask my parents you know whether I was allowed to fly solo around the world I was still living at home and still at school and and that conversation led to a, a process of fundraising we fundraised a quarter of a million dollars on a laptop computer it led wow. to the process of renting an airplane and covering that airplane in sponsors stickers and just that whole two-year journey was incredibly wild but Eventually, at 19 years old, 10 years ago this year, I hopped into a single-engine airplane, heavily modified, 160 gallons of fuel inside the cockpit with me, and I said goodbye to my family and friends. To my poor old mum, I was incredibly nervous, and I took off from the east coast of Australia and started what was a 70-day life-changing journey. And it was 24,000 miles. It was 35 stops in 15 countries. It took me all the way to the top of the world in Iceland and all the way back down the other side. And it was 
yes, in some ways, a, a Guinness World Record attempting adventure, but as the adventure unfolded and then once we kind of finished that journey, it became so much more than that. And that's kind of what has led me here today to talk about uh, kind of all the benefits and the, the outcomes of, of that trip. So I don't even know where you want to start again. We can talk all day about that <laughs> round the world flight. But um, yes, at 19 years old, long story short, I thought it would be a good idea to fly a single engine airplane around. And it was a world record, wasn't it? Yeah. So we did it. We, after 70 days, landed back in Australia. I mean, we island hopped all the way across the Pacific Ocean, across the US, went over the tip of Greenland and flew to Iceland, across the North Atlantic. We went to Scotland, England, France, Greece, and flew down the White Cliffs of Dover and, and looked at Spitfires there in the UK and uh, went to Scotland, England, France, Greece. There was crisis in Egypt, ended up in Jordan. Uh, across Saudi Arabia to Oman and then down to Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Indonesia. Everything from 60,000 foot thunderstorms to airframe icing over the North Atlantic to uh, crisis in the streets of Egypt and a diversion around Iraqi airspace to uh, Jordan. Everything from bribery cash in Indonesia to, I mean, gosh, the, the ups and downs of that adventure were unending. But we did become the youngest, or I became the youngest person first teenager in history at 19 to have ever flown solo around. It's incredible. I have so many questions. I know nothing <laughs> about flying. I've got so many questions yeah. about it. So where did, when did you sleep? How did you fit sleep into that? I know it's a bit of a strange question. So have you been asked that before? I've been asked every question. I mean, oh, okay. my favourite question is, did you stop? Which is always <laughs> one that makes me chuckle because, yes. I mean, it took just to get from Hawaii to California, which was the longest over water crossing in the world for a single engine airplane it was 2150 nautical miles at the midpoint of that leg we were a thousand miles from land in any direction in a single engine airplane um that leg alone was 15 hours so to fly from california to australia a normal airliner is is less than that so just to get from hawaii to california was 15 hours so every time i'm in that airplane we were pushing nine and ten hour legs every single time and i was doing that every second day for 70 days it was it's a long way around the world in a single engine how did you stay alert how did you like stay on track so we planned it we had a lot of mentors and a lot of supporters you know with a lot of aviation experience and i was 19 year old kid and i lacked experience at that point just because of time itself hadn't allowed me to kind of build up a ton of experience so I used a lot of very experienced mentors to kind of fill that void to make this as safe as possible because that was you know, the ultimate outcome, right, was to make sure that we did it successfully and safely. So what we did was we planned the flight. So every time I was sitting in that airplane on my own, I had a job or a task to do every 15 minutes. So whether that be position reporting through a, a long distance over what a HF radio or whether that be doing fuel logs and writing down engine trends or whether that be actually transferring fuel from inside the cockpit. I mean, we had a lot of fuel. That was a flying fuel tank at that point inside the cockpit with me. Transferring that fuel outside the aircraft tube into the bottom of the, the fuel tank in the wing, just the process of transferring fuel was a big job in itself. So every 15 minutes I was busy for probably anywhere from five to 10 minutes. So it really only gave downtime of another five or 10 minutes to kind of look out the window and question all of your life decisions then then it was time to do another job. So that, that kind of helped pass the time. And did you, so when you got somewhere, did you sleep for a while and then take off again? 100%. So 
just to kind of refuel the airplane took hours and hours and hours. So it was a massive bladder tank that sat inside the cockpit and it was strapped down with eight really, really big straps. And then all of my belongings sat on top of that fuel tank when it was full of fuel. And then as we flew, that fuel tank would empty and then everything in the back would fall into a heap and basically become a mess. So the process of pulling all the stuff out, getting that tank refilled and then securing it safely back to the floor of the airplane was a really big job. So it's, it's something that I always did on a dedicated day. So we flew one day and then the next day was always a refueling kind of debrief of the last leg and then brief of the next leg kind of day, a preparation day. And then I would fly that following day. So we had to break those rules a couple of times just with the logistics and red tape and weather and, and other kind of you know reasons. But for the most part, it was fly day and then have a prep day and then fly day and have a prep day. And that took what was a 24,000 mile journey and broke it down into bite-sized pieces and kind of increased the level of safety. It wasn't a race. It was more a, a way to say, we need to do this step-by-step step and do it thoroughly. Was there any point in that journey where you regretted taking that challenge on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think the day I took off when my family and and the 60 Minutes team and all these people are standing there going, you know, this is great. Off you go, you know, go and have fun and, and go and do. I mean, I've been for two years, I've been telling people that I was going to fly a plane around the world. And then that's just this massive planning process. And at times you don't even really know whether you're going to get to the start line. And then all of a sudden you're at the start line realizing that now you've got to do what you've been saying that you were going to do for two years. And that is a really frightening moment. So before I even took off, I think I was looking at myself in the mirror that morning going, why, you know, like, why, why was this even a good idea? And then as the journey progressed, it held every emotion that a good adventure should, you know, from boredom to sheer terror and pleasure to immense regret. So it was like some days were diamonds. Yeah. You were staring at lava entering, you know, the water on the, the, the coast of Hawaii and seeing the steam billow up into the sky, or you were staring down at a glacier over Iceland. And then the next minute, what was eight hours later, you were looking down at the, you know, the clouds of Scotland and the castles, you know, on the edge of the water. And, and then, you know, everything, we just saw it all, the sand in Saudi Arabia to, you know, the, the forests through Indonesia. It was just incredible. The whole thing had so many amazing moments, but there were so many moments throughout all of that mixed in where you just were at your absolute peak from a, you know, a stress and a, an anxiety and kind of an adventure build kind of challenge filled kind of experience whether it be thunderstorms or icing or stress of flying internationally or language barriers logistics on the ground like it was a lot and it was a lot for a 19 year old kid so plenty of moments that I really just wanted to be at home and probably from Greece onwards so the last kind of probably over a third of the flight I really wanted to be home I think I'd probably realized at that point what I was putting my family through and and all of, uh, kind of the sponsors and, and team members. And, and I kind of got to that point and went, wait on, like, this is a really big deal. We need to make sure this ends well. So from that point on, I was, I just wanted to be a normal teenager sitting at home, playing the PlayStation, relaxing, but um, it held every emotion. It's incredible to think you did that at 19. Like when I think what I was doing at 19, it definitely wasn't that. It's <laughs> like, it blows my mind that you even attempted to do that, let alone like completed that challenge. 
Were you in contact with people at home the whole time or were there times where it was just you and the plane? When I was flying, no, not really. I mean, it just didn't work like that. An airline would fly, especially over the oceans, and an, an airliner would fly from, say, the US to Australia or the US to the UK at maybe the mid-30s or high 30s, 35,000 feet, 38,000 feet. I was flying in an aeroplane that could not fly over, say, 14 or 15,000 feet, even if we wanted to, and I was doing the average leg at about 9,000 feet, so I was quite low. That meant that where I was, I mean, there was no ability other than through a sat phone and getting a text message out every now and then, which was very expensive and very unreliable. Even though it was 10 years ago, tech has changed a lot in 10 years. Connectivity has changed a lot in 10 years, which makes me feel old. But no, from the the moment I took off on, on basically every leg, I was in contact roughly with air traffic control through a very rough kind of and ready radio setup. But no, I was not in contact with family. Obviously, when I landed in most of the countries, I could reach out and talk to them um, in, in some places. Coral atolls in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I couldn't, but uh, for the most part, I could. So flying, no, I was pretty disconnected, but focused on the job. And then when I landed in those reset days, I could kind of catch up. Wow. And were there moments that, were there any kind of specific moments that were really scary that stand out for you? Yeah, I mean, I took off from... Uh, that coral atoll actually this tiny little place called Kiribati in the Pacific Ocean and we'd shipped fuel to this island three months before in drums and that's all the fuel that was on the island so I landed on the island fueled up the airplane with a hand pump took hours and hours with a couple of islander guys who helped me I took off with that fuel on board bound for Hawaii and I was climbing out of this hot ridiculous island it was humid the airplane was working really hard and air traffic control called me up and said hey there's a storm and it's kind of popped up now on your track to Hawaii. And I said, okay. I said, how big is it? And they said, oh, well, it goes from sea level to 60,000 feet. And I did not even know thunderstorms could go to 60,000 feet. So that leg in itself, I mean, we diverted 180 miles right of track to miss the eye of the storm to continue on to Hawaii. If we had landed back at that coral atoll, the whole trip would have been over. There was no more fuel on the island. I would have been stuck there and, and, I have no idea how that would have unfolded, but uh, we continued on to Hawaii and going through that storm, you know, diverting around the eye of that storm was a, a rough old day, as was icing over the North Atlantic, a very rough day. Um, the We had a problem in Greece. We ended up hiding the aeroplane behind a building for 72 hours. We had an issue with an airport manager. We had $10,000 of US cash hidden in the aeroplane for bribery purposes. So that gives you a bit of an idea of like, this is not normal, right? Like flying a single engine airplane through many of these countries in the world is not normal. So now, I think in the olden days, it was all about navigation and it was about, you know, flying these aircraft that were not high-tech aircraft around the world and exploring these new places and really trying to make it to your destination. Whereas now in the modern day age, it's more about the logistical red tape kind of restrictions that come with flying a single engine airplane around the world. So uh, very political and very messy at times. But um, yeah, plenty of times on the trip where I just wanted to be at home. That is incredible that you navigated that as a 19-year-old. Does it? Do you look back at that and think, like, how did I do that as a 19-year-old? Does it feel like a different life? I, I honestly do. And, and that's interesting because 10 years on, you would think that it would have just normalized. You say, oh yeah, you know, I did that when I was 19. No, I mean, the older I get, and I think 
I don't know whether as we get older, we, we kind of struggle with anxiety or, or, or self doubt more than we did when we were young, like that kind of youthful kind of confidence and naivety or whatever it is. But as I grow older and I kind of look back and I think like my parents were absolute troopers, you know, like I don't know if my 17 year old kid stood at the, the, the kitchen sink and dried the dishes next to me as I did with my dad. And I don't know if my 17 year old kid asked me whether they could fly around the world whether i would say yes or not i i don't know i suppose i would have to now with my history but i don't know how my parents went through it i look back sometimes some days and wonder how i did it but i think at the end of the day that actually makes me more proud than anything to look back and say well we pulled it off and and as a result all these incredible things happened and somehow i was i always laugh as i stand on a keynote stage and point at my body and i say this was this was named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers. You know, the opportunity to shake the hand of a man who walked on the moon, Buzz Aldrin, or to meet the Royals, or just to all of that stuff now looking back was a sign more than anything of what a big deal the Round the World flight was. And we had created an impact and we had made a difference. And I think we're, we're pretty proud of that. It's unreal. And, the, and I guess even more interestingly, like that's not even your whole story. That's this is kind of partly what's mind blowing in that, you know, most people don't even have that in their history, which is incredible. But then life goes on and things change even more for you. Like there's there's so much more to your experience in life as well. So if you don't mind, tell me a little bit about kind of what happened once you got back and like the, the I guess the next big life event that happened for you. Yeah. So multiple chapters, as you say, I'm surprised I don't have gray hair at this point. My poor old mum. I always say the further I get in this story, the more you feel sorry for my mum. But, you know, yeah, so, I mean, 14 years old, you started my flight training, 17, started to plan the round-the-world flight, 19, took off on the -the round-the-world flight, 20, published a book called Born to Fly, out there living this amazing life, experiencing amazing things, meeting amazing people. It was just a a life that was a constant high. And uh, I was on the speaking circuit, just a great existence for a normal Aussie kid and a normal Aussie family. Two years after the end of the round the world flight, my whole life took, I mean, a turn is not even, uh, not even good enough to explain what happened for me. It was aviation has provided me the very best and the very worst experiences of my life. Two years after the end of the round the world flight, I turned down a job with an airline, that, that airline that I dreamed of flying for my whole life, the Qantas. I turned down a job offer with Qantas because I wanted to fly old airplanes. And if you have any well, you obviously do have UK-based listers. My ultimate dream was to actually fly a Spitfire. So that was my dream, a World War II British fighter, the most beautiful aeroplane in the world. So I turned down a job at 21 with an airline to go and fly vintage uh, aircraft in the hope to one day make my way to a Spitfire. And I went to work on a normal day to fly a vintage open cockpit biplane that was built in the late 1930s, a British aircraft. And my job was to fly up and down the beach of Australia to take one passenger for a ride at a time to look at the waves and the sand and the buildings and the coastline. And then if they wanted, we'd go upside down if they were that way inclined and adventurous and then we'd land. So on this day, I popped in the airplane. I met this incredibly nice gentleman who was my passenger, my first passenger for the morning. He strapped into the aircraft. He had a bit of flying experience himself. I walked around to the front of the aircraft, grabbed the propeller and I flicked the propeller with my hand which was how we started that machine. It purred to life beautifully. It was just the most amazing morning. And then I jumped in the aircraft, taxied to the end of the runway. It was a grass airstrip. 
I turned that airplane around, lined up with the runway, pushed the throttle forward. We sped up down the, the runway. We lifted off the ground and we started to fly. The end of the runway disappeared beneath the nose of the airplane. And a few seconds later, we had an engine failure and we lost power. We lost power at a low level and I pushed the nose down and did everything I could in, in what was a matter of seconds, but it wasn't enough. And I mean, I do this for a living and it's such a, a, a brutal story to, to share. I, I literally share this story all the time and, and wonder why I do this. But despite doing everything I possibly could, what resulted was a really horrific plane crash. So at 21 years old, uh, I was cut from the wreckage of an airplane. I was placed in a helicopter flown to hospital, but I was actually flown there as the only survivor, uh, which was the toughest, which was the toughest part of the whole experience. And for me, I had five breaks in my back, uh, shattered facial bones, uh, almost removed right ankle hanging on by tendons and ligaments. And I was operated on immediately. I spent some time in an ICU ward. They placed me in a recovery ward. I woke up no movement or feeling my waist down. And I was diagnosed by the doctors as a complete paraplegic. Um, and once again, the hardest part of this chapter was that although I was quite literally shattered physically from head to toe and obviously obliterated mentally, I was actually the lucky one. So that is the immediate, uh, I think, fall from uh, the high. You know, I was at a, such a good place in my life that it really left me at a higher place to fall. That's exactly what happened. And uh, I was left in, in hospital facing what was almost six months in hospital, a year and a half in rehabilitation and a really long journey to recover physically, but an even longer and even harder, more arduous journey to recover mentally. Wow. Uh, it's It's so hard listening to that story. I can't even imagine what it must feel like telling that story. And I can't imagine what it must be like having that story and, and having that in your past. And, you know, before anything else, thank you for sharing that. It cannot be easy reliving that time and time again. I mean, where did you even go from there? What happened when you came round or realised how life had changed or, or, or did you realize then how much life had changed and, and what was going to be ahead of you yeah i definitely did uh i wasn't quite sure what was going to be ahead but i was a guy who had written a book called born to fly and had been out there in the aviation world and achieved this thing with the around the world flight that was really public and next minute I was in an accident that was, you know, by every definition, horrific, and then ended up in hospital, basically locked in there with no ability to do everything or anything other than lie in bed and think, uh, which may have been a, a negative at that point. So yes, I was very well aware that I was standing at the foot of what seemed to be an un, uh, a seemingly unclimbable mountain, and I knew it was going to be tough. I found out very quickly that any idea of learning to walk again or getting back to flying or trying to work out, you know, rediscovering identity or, or purpose or where my life was going to go was going to fall on what happened above my shoulders, not below my shoulders. And I very quickly learned that that's where life is, is won and lost. And 
I started down my own journey of physical and mental rehabilitation whilst surrounded in a spinal rehabilitation ward with paraplegics and quadriplegics who are doing exactly the same thing based off an accident or an incident in their own life that put them also at the, the very bottom you know, of, of their journey. And it was interesting to go down that road in parallel to experience it myself, you know, knowing what I knew from the round the world flight, trying to take those lessons, those mentors, those supporters who all showed up to my bedside. It was, it was kind of going through it myself, but also comparing it to other people, watching quadriplegics versus paraplegics, you know, being in the rehabilitation gym and seeing how other people also process this that, you know, really in some ways helped me recover, but also sparked an interest inside of me around mental health, around resilience and, and around this idea of, of showing up and, and being able to endure tough times to bounce back and, and ultimately to be better because of, of what we go through. So I knew from the get-go that it was going to be tough and, and I wasn't wrong. And in terms of your recovery, I guess it's not just physical. There's, there must be so much psychologically that you need to recover from if that's you know because you can't forget an experience like that can you start to recover I mean obviously physically you have you totally recovered or started to recover but like what's the difference between kind of what was going on physically and what's going on what kind of went on psychologically for you after that as well yeah I mean psychologically that became the priority day one, I suppose, you know, physically I wasn't in a position to move. I was in bed. The nurses would come in and roll my body over every uh, two hours. They did that 24 hours a day. And um, I was not in a position to even start down a road of physical recovery, but I couldn't go down that road with any kind of intention or effort until I worked out what happened in that accident to work out why it went wrong and to make sure that I had done everything I possibly could that day. And, and it took a long while for me to kind of put it all together. And, but ultimately, that's where I ended up, knowing that, you know, everything that was done that day was done right and with the best of intentions. And you did your very best. And, and sometimes in life, we get placed in these situations that it doesn't matter what you do or how hard you try, the outcome is not what you want it to be. So that was a very hard struggle for me mentally to process that. And then once I... I, don't, I can't say I got through that, but once I found some kind of, you know, uh, order in the, the chaos or the mess, I started to look towards physical recovery. About the same time, they were lifting me out of the bed with a sling and kind of leaving me in this sling until I couldn't bear the pain. They were placing me back in bed. I was being able to do that a little bit longer every single day and eventually they placed me in a wheelchair and that's when I started operating to a timetable and that timetable eventually became two sessions a day in the rehabilitation gym a session in the hydrotherapy pool a session on patient education so how to live with a lifelong disability there are a whole bunch of things that a spinal cord injury does to a body that most people don't understand including me when i went into hospital and then they gave us one session a week with a psychologist so we had 12 to 14 sessions a week on on physical and one session on mental an imbalance that is absolutely just ridiculous. And they sent us home from hospital, whether we were paraplegic like myself or quadriplegic, based on our physical gains or you know, our physical potential. If we plateaued off from a physical point of view, okay, time to go home and start living your new life. The lack of focus on the mental health aspect in spinal rehabilitation was mind-blowing to me. So yes, in the beginning, it was all kind of process in the accident. 
then it became a drive to find physical recovery to work out what my maximum potential was. What that led to, uh, I mean, recovery from a spinal cord injury is a rehabilitation assisted lottery. So for me, I had an L1 quarter equina uh, injury, which meant that my recovery was sporadic. Uh, we didn't really know what would happen. Worked every day in the rehabilitation gym. My numbers started to come out, flicker of a toe, twitch of a muscle, eventually leading to standing for the first time just for a few seconds and then just shuffling in a walking frame using mostly upper body strength, physiotherapists moving my feet beneath my body. And then that led to going home in the wheelchair, but with crutches and this kind of idea of like getting independence on crutches and out of that wheelchair. And after a year and a half of rehabilitation, I managed to get two crutches, but also then beyond crutches to walking unassisted. So I always tell people, especially virtually that I walk like I've had a few too many Tennessee whiskeys. As you can tell from my accent, I live in Nashville, Tennessee uh, in the USA. So I do walk with a disability. I have no push in my feet, no roll control. I have no feeling in my feet, the backs of my legs where I sit, no calf muscles, no glute muscles, and bladder and bowels and internal systems no longer work. And I always say uh, they're overrated. You don't need those anyway. So, you know, lots of things did not come back. But when I walk down the street, I look like I have a sore ankle and a bad leg and everything else is behind closed doors. So not only was my recovery miraculous, not only did I get back to walking, I also found my way back to flying and, and flying airplanes with certain brakes and retraining as an incomplete paraplegic as a commercial helicopter pilot. So went down a new road in aviation and, and found new identity through that. So, I mean, again, we could just like to round them off flight, we could talk all day about the accident and the recovery, but ultimately the kind of that wild story of a, an amazing high for a normal Aussie kid down to a, a moment that took it all away. And then this, ridiculous journey physically and mentally back to kind of finding a new identity and a new purpose and a new way forward. It's unreal. Like your story is unreal. I can't even, the fact that we don't, you know, we don't have all day to talk about all of this. Uh, there's so many questions I have and, and so much that I'm guessing lots of people listening to this will have as well um, about that whole process. Like how, how, you know, kind of how you go from one world to another in terms of kind of getting back up in the air again, what was that process like? It was in the beginning, probably in the first month after the accident, if you had mentioned an aeroplane to me, I would have, you know, stared fire into your soul. I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, it was, it was raw. But then that very quickly became this burning passion once again to get back into the air. And, and when I look back on this, honestly, Gemma, my ultimate height of stubbornness in my life was being in hospital, surrounded by family and friends. My mum, my who had been in an accident with me when I was eight in a car accident, I was perfectly fine, but mum had broken her back, knew what it was like to be in hospital for a long period. She'd been through something somewhat similar. Uh, she never went home. She stayed right by the hospital in a hotel for, for almost six months, five months. Um, even with my mum right there, my journey back to flying, I was so stubborn. I took leave from the hospital for the very first time, probably four months in. I got into my purple wheelchair with white wheels, with crutches between my legs and my clothes on my knees. I caught a cab. I left my mum in Sydney at the hospital. I caught a cab to the train station. I caught a train one hour north. The train stopped. I got out in the rain, never been out of the hospital in a wheelchair on my own before. Got into a bus, took another hour north 
to the uh, business or the organization that I was uh, flying with when I had the accident. And I had them lift me into an old World War II airplane. And I went flying for the very first time after the accident before I left hospital. But I look back at that and just wonder why I didn't just say to my mum, who had a car there at the airport, hey, like, will you throw me in the car and drive me two hours north to, to go flying with, with the boys? For some reason, internally, it was something that I, I think had to do myself, which is very intriguing to me now and very stubborn, but I did it. I, I got back in the aeroplane and it was tough. And to be in the aeroplane just as a passenger was tough. The road back to reobtaining my aviation medical certificate, so navigating permanent disability and working out what I could do and couldn't do and coming to grips with the fact that I could never be an airline pilot. I could not put the brakes on in, in 98% of aeroplanes. Having all of those dreams kind of taken away, but then finding the tiny little gems of hope in the utter mess the types of airplanes that i could fly such as a piper cub or say a spitfire has handbrakes so that's still on the dream one day to fly a spitfire but to work out what i could fly and to be happy with that and and to pursue that to reobtain the aviation medical certificate to go through the specialist visits and the physicals and to go through the flight testing that they put me through just to be able to prove my ability to fly was really hard but ultimately, it led to being handed a certificate that said, hey, you can fly again. And then I climbed into an airplane, which I actually, some of your listeners will know more than, say, the American audience we have with the keynotes. I named my little airplane that allowed me to fly again, a Piper Cub. I named him Doug. And he's quite well known on Instagram, old Doug. But it was actually a very meaningful name. And he was named after Douglas Barter, who was an English World War II Spitfire pilot a squadron leader, a squadron ace, and a prisoner of war that survived the war and went on to live a long and wonderful life, who happened to be a double amputee above the knee, who did all of that flying throughout the war with tin legs. So there's a movie called Reach for the Skies and a book called Reach for the Skies about Sir Douglas Tin Legs Barter. And he became a inspiration within hospital and then obviously a namesake for an aeroplane that allowed me to fly again. So yeah, that whole process in itself is its own discussion and battling the demons of getting back into the air and, and realizing that passion over or outweighed, I, I suppose, the, the fears and the worries that I had about flying. But ultimately now, I mean, we fly all the time and, and we absolutely love it. My wife loves it. And um, it's back to being a huge part of my life. So yeah, that, that was a big journey. You have such a unique mindset in that it sounds like you're very focus so when you set your mind to something or you make a decision about something then you do your best to kind of make that happen mm. in terms of mindset because that's you know something that's an area we both work in where would you say your lowest point was with mindset in the whole process of everything you've experienced so i think this will probably be surprising there was a time a year and a half after the accident where my recovery plateaued off. So every day that you woke up, and I'm quite open about all the medical limitations in my life, but one of the limitations was that a spinal cord injury takes bladder and bowel control away from you. And I still remember the day that the urologist walked into my hospital bed, he pulled back the curtain and he held up this thing, which was what we call a, a stick or a self catheter. And it was a way to basically empty your bladder through a tube. And I had to do it four or five times a day. When he held that up to me and walked into that room, I was beyond horrified as a 19-year-old man. I was like, no, I, I don't want this. And I said to him, I was like, you can 
take my legs. That's like, I'll live my life in a wheelchair. Give me my bladder back. And he said, unfortunately, it's not a barter system. That's not how this works. And I could have at that point climbed out the window. That was a tough, tough point. Now, gosh, seven or eight years on, I wouldn't even, if a genie came out of a bottle and said to me, Ryan, what do you want back? There are things I would ask for, but bladder control is not one of them. Like I just live a normal life and, and I'm, I'm not really, really don't have, I'm just used to it. I'm, it's just a part of who I am. So that was a low point, but it was really a year and a half after the accident when my recovery from a physical point of view plateaued off and I realized that, okay, this is it. You know, progress gave purpose to the pain throughout my whole recovery. Anything that was progress made me get out of bed the next day and go back to the rehabilitation gym and work really hard because I was getting somewhere. But when that stopped, that was a really hard pill to swallow because it was accepting at that point a new normal and understanding that this was now lifelong. So that plateau was a really hard time, but it was actually even further on in my journey after I'd moved to the US. So here I am living in America. I have this wonderful little yellow airplane that got me back into the sky named Doug and I've shipped Doug to America and I'm off on this big adventure and everyone who's watched this journey is like, oh, this kid's on the keynote stage in America and living the dream and sharing lessons learned and embracing this new adventure. But behind closed doors, behind that kind of facade of success, I was struggling more with my mental health at that point in my life than I ever had. And I think it came back to having ticked so many boxes. I was flying again. I was an airplane owner. I was living this adventure. I was off doing all these things that apparently I needed to do in order to be successful, in order to be happy. I chased all of this stuff. I'd attained it because I was a dedicated, pretty focused, determined young guy. But on the inside, I was struggling every night when I put my head on the pillow. I was lost. I was directionless. I was unhappy and I couldn't work out why. And it felt like for me that I'd spent years after the accident rebuilding a puzzle and it was a thousand piece puzzle. And I was 999 pieces into this puzzle, which was incredibly, I should have been proud of that. It was incredibly amazing where I'd ended up, but there was one piece missing. And that missing puzzle piece caused me serious grief. And it was a really, really hard time in my life. It was a frustrating time because I had all this stuff, but something was still missing. It, it, something was not right. And so honestly, lowest point was probably not when people expect it. You know, it was it was years later um, after I'd found my new existence and and still hadn't found what I was missing. And I think that's probably something that a lot of people can relate to, that missing. I love that analogy of the missing piece of the puzzle. Obviously, I don't love the idea that as humans, we have to experience that. It's, it's not a nice place to be. But I think it describes something that a lot of people go through where life should feel good and you should feel on top of the world or on top of your game but actually there's this this piece missing and we don't even necessarily know what the piece is we we might we don't even always know what we're looking for what that piece could be and how to complete that puzzle and I think definitely it's something that I can relate to and I'm sure there are many many people that can relate to that obviously we've all got different experiences and it'll come out in different ways and where has like where have your breakthroughs been when it comes to mindset and progress on that front yes i mean you know a little bit of, of my backstory but this is the most important part of my whole story and what, what i'm about to say this this whole idea of finding this missing puzzle piece is why i do what i do and it was incredibly surprising where i found it so 
I always say, despite the highs of the round the world flight and the lows of an accident, a spinal cord injury, a paraplegic diagnosis and my recovery, my missing puzzle piece was actually found parked in my driveway, uh, which is always a very interesting statement. But when I moved to the US, I did what I thought you were meant to do when you moved to Tennessee and I bought a truck and I went off on all these big adventures in my American truck. And one of those adventures took me west of Nashville, Tennessee to Memphis, Tennessee. And I spent one day in Memphis. It was just a day trip. And I tried to fit everything I possibly could into that one day. And the highlight of that trip to Memphis was going to Elvis's house, right? Going to Graceland. And I went through the gates of Graceland. I went up to the mansion. I did the tour, just like a good old tourist with my headphones on and that iPad around my neck. I walked all the rooms. I saw the jungle room. I saw Elvis's tomb. But then they placed us in a bus and they took us in that bus back down to the main ticketing building. And I realized when I arrived there, now you're obviously not based in the US, but you may know that in America, they push you through the gift shop at all good American attractions. Like you cannot get out of those places unless you go through the gift shop. So I went through the gift shop and it turned out to be a really good idea because I ended up spending some money, right? And I bought this. This is a $30 model very worn out but model pink cadillac so i bought this ridiculous 30 dollars toy car that was pink and i took it back to nashville that evening walked through the door my housemate at the time looked at me confused and concerned he's like why did you buy a pink car and i i went on to explain to him that i'd always had this weird love and interest for large american vintage cars the ones with fins that were 19 foot long that sat outside diners or in the the scenes of happy days or American graffiti. And I was like, that's just like obnoxious, unnecessary art. And I was like, I just thought that was the coolest thing in the whole wide world. And at the top of that list of, of kind of things I loved in that category was the pink Cadillac itself, which was made famous by obviously Elvis, but also Bruce Springsteen and Aretha Franklin. And it's just this incredible kind of pop culture icon that stood the test of time. So for some reason, I'd always wanted a pink Cadillac. Now I had no money. I just moved to America. I was starting a business. So this model was all I could afford. So I sat this thing beside the television and I thought, well, that'll be a reminder. Nine months later, I was sitting on the couch, scrolling social media mindlessly when I came across something for sale. The next day I hopped back in my truck. I drove seven hours south to a place called Jackson, Georgia. And I purchased a real 1960, 19 foot long, two and a half ton pink Cadillac, the worst financial decision I have ever made in my life. But I bought this car and I drove it back to Nashville that day and it stopped on the way home. It broke down and rolled to a stop on the side of the road multiple times. Like this thing was, (laughs) the trip home was chaotic. So instead of seven hours to get home, it took two days. Oh no. This car was two days, two days. So this car was an absolute basket case. But we pulled up behind my house in Nashville and my, my dad was with me at the time. My mum was following behind us in the truck. We pulled up behind my house in Nashville and what was surprising was despite the chaos of getting this car home, I still had a massive smile on my face. We were both in that vehicle just smiling like kids. We named that car Flo. So now I have Flo and Doug, uh, the <laughs> aeroplane and the pink Cadillac. And Flo became a toy. What flow became was a lesson in the power of of joy. Every time we drove this car down the road, people would pull up beside us 
in a, a moving vehicle and scream. They'd take photos or selfies whilst driving a car. They'd yell at us from a stoplight. They'd stop us at a gas station and ask questions. They'd want to sit in the car. They'd want to take photos with the car. It was just insane. I've never seen a, a piece of machinery cause a reaction like this ridiculous pink Cadillac did. Everywhere we drove it, it was almost uh, awkward to be in the car. What we watched happen was this incredible sense of joy, just this, regardless of what I was going through in my life, every time I was in the Cadillac, I felt a million dollars. But everyone else out there in the world, regardless of what they were going through, when they crossed paths with this pink Cadillac, they smiled like kids and they felt incredible joy and it created all these wonderful moments. There was one day in the office doing some work in the business, stressed, tired, worn out at that low point in my life where I jumped in that Cadillac and I took it downtown to run some errands. For some reason, I took the Cadillac instead of the truck. I pulled up at a gas station on the, uh, the way home and I saw an old man there and that old man was staring at that pink Cadillac and he was smiling ear to ear, an ear to ear grin that you know, smile any harder his ears would have touched behind his head. And even though that man didn't come up to me, he didn't talk to me, he didn't ask to take photos or he didn't ask questions, he didn't put it on his social media story, he just looked at that car, he smiled a massive grin and he walked away. I sat and I thought about that old man for some reason, really in a reflective time in my life. And I realized that even though I didn't know what he was going through, I mean, adversity is a byproduct of breathing, right? We're all going through something. Even though I didn't know what it was, I did know for sure that that pink Cadillac gave him a moment of relief that day. It took the weight off his shoulders just for a second. All his problems, whatever they were, disappeared into irrelevancy just for a moment. Why? Not because of the pink Cadillac, not the fins, not the white wall tires or the massive steering wheel. It was just that ridiculous pink car and the fact that it made him smile that made a tiny difference. It was that moment of joy that made a tiny difference. And what that did for me at a time when I was struggling is it took me down this road as a speaker on resilience and mental health. It took me down a road of discovery. I realized that in my life, I had so many things that brought me joy, so many things that made me smile. I grew up in an Aussie beach town. I used to love surfing. I love fishing, anything to do with clear salt water. I love cooking food on the, you know, the smoker, smoking a brisket. I love hanging out with friends, going to the pub, having a flying old cars. I had all these things that brought me joy in my life. And I would go and I would do them and I would feel happy. I would feel joy. But then I would go back to, to normal life. And when I got out of that pink Cadillac, reality would hit me like a truck and I was straight back to struggling. And I wondered when I thought about that old man, whether or not that was a mistake. The problem was that I had, and we never, all of us, we don't really think about why we do the things in our life that bring us joy. We don't think about the benefits. We disconnect them from real life. And that's a massive, massive mistake. What if we took that feeling of joy and implemented it in our life as a resilience building tool? What if we used it as a pick-me-up, as a recharge every single time that we're struggling? So I started with nothing to lose, started merging those two worlds really intentionally. So every time I struggled in my life, which was quite often at this point, as I said, quite at the low point mentally, every time I struggled... I would prioritize something that made me smile like a kid. It might've been a simple ice cream by the river. It might've been a beer with a mate or a quick fly in the airplane or driving the Cadillac. What was important is that I prioritized it, but I did so with an understanding, a fresh understanding of the benefit. Because of that old man and that smile and that moment, I went and I did these things in my life knowing that they had a massive impact in my struggle. That understanding of the benefits led to permission. So it took something that we often see as selfish prioritizing ourselves and it made it essential. It took that 
I really should be emptying my email inbox feeling, or I really should be spending some time cleaning the house or the garage feeling, or I really should be staying late at work on that Friday afternoon feeling. And it evolved it into permission to prioritize me and to prioritize something that made me feel a million bucks. That prioritization led to, or permission led to prioritization, which was actual, you know, placing it in the calendar and actually actioning these things. And then that prioritization led to positive change. So this one pink Cadillac, this one fresh new perspective on the power of joy, the power of prioritizing joy led me down a ridiculous road in my life to making the, the, all these things that made me smile a really big part of my everyday, an incredible resilience building tool. What was interesting was when that pink Cadillac conversation merged with those two backstories of my life, the round the world flight and the accident, I realized that the greatest resilience building tool that I'd ever discovered, even after learning to walk again and, and, and being named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers, it didn't come from those two stereotypical, seemingly unrelatable chapters. It came from the stupid idea of, of buying a pink Cadillac and prioritizing the joy, the smiles in our every day. And that was my missing puzzle piece. So long story short, at the point, my darkest point in my life, my greatest lesson came from the most ridiculous of places. But that's what's so amazing about this, right? Like we're all looking for that missing puzzle piece. But I now believe wholeheartedly that it is so accessible and it's so attainable and it's right there in front of us. It's the hobbies, the interests, the simple pleasures that we have in our lives. We all have our own pink Cadillac. That's why we ask the question, what's your pink Cadillac at every single keynote? We all have these things, what we need, what we don't have, what we lack, what I help other people understand is the benefits of using these mm -hmm. things as a resilience building tool, which leads to permission, prioritization and positive change. So I'm out of breath, but at the darkest point in my life, that pink Cadillac became just this most incredible representation of the power of joy and it changed my life. It's such an incredible observation. and from a research perspective. So obviously my research topic is resilience. And this idea of joy, finding something that absorbs you. So it makes you happy for some reason, for a moment in time. It's got meaning. It's something that is personal to you. They're all things that help us to become more resilient. So help us kind of get through adversity and learn from that process and, and put ourselves in a better position in the future. What I really love about that, first of all, I love the idea of a pink Cadillac. I, I think I'd quite like a pink Cadillac. Um, I'd certainly like to be in one for a while. I mean, to be there honest, I can barely... <laughs> well, it's actually on the list. I'm sure I will at some point. I need a new pair of cowboy boots. There you go. But what, <laughs> what I love about it is it's something so simple. It's something that we can all identify, you know, one thing at least. It, there could be more than one thing that that, that brings us joy. And I think... A lot of that kind of ties in with research around meaning as well, because if something brings us joy, it probably means something to us for some reason. You know, if it's, you know, a, a drink with a friend or a walk with a dog or um, spending time with the kids or I don't know, some kind of activity like running or something sporting, which is not my pink had back. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's something we can all relate to. And there is that element of meaning as well. It means something to us for some reason. And I think... I talk a little bit about these idea, this idea of like micro meaning moments. So I, it's not that I'm anti-purpose by any stretch of the imagination. I think that having purpose in life is a brilliant place to be. I just think that today, lots of us struggle with this idea of purpose because it seems so big and it can be 
consuming and the amount of people I talk to and who say yeah purpose you know what does that actually mean like what is my purpose it's such a big concept but actually meaning we can all relate to because meaning is something that means something to us it's important to us for some reason and I love this idea of like micro meaning moments and I think attaching this idea of make it joyful like focus on joy find something and I love the idea of making it a priority and actually making that happen as well because you're so right in the fact that often we feel selfish in pursuing something for ourselves but actually if we're looking after ourselves and we're looking after our psychological well-being our mental health but also our resilience as well you know we're building those resilience reserves perhaps before we even need them we might not be in a moment of adversity but if we've got those reserves there you're more likely to be able to respond to those challenges in an effective way that works for you if you're building your like resilience in advance I just want to, I just want to rant and rant and rant. You are so right. And, you know, so we say stepping back allows us to show up better. So what does it mean to show up better in life? You know, what is it? So within a corporate culture, we do a professional world. We talk about mental health, performance and culture, but that also applies to our everyday life as a mom and a dad and a brother and a sister and our home life as well. So just as a human in general, how do we show up better? You know, you talk about meaning. We often talk about our why, like, what is our why? Why bother? Why get up? Why navigate the tough stuff? Why learn to walk again? Like, why get up and go through the adversity that is an unavoidable element of experience, a byproduct of breathing? Why bother? When we have this seesaw or this teeter totter in front of us, where on one side is adversity and all the tough, unavoidable stuff alike, we have the other side, which is all the good experiences. And the whole aim of the game for me is to keep it simple. It's to outweigh the the bad with good it's to at least find balance if not balance it towards the good like i want to find more positives in my life than negative that helps me define my why but my why my meaning it's also my roadmap if i go and get in my pink cadillac to go somewhere and i just start driving in random directions not only do i use a lot of fuel and gas in that car and, and 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 not go very quickly but i don't get where i'm i'm going if we get in a car and we say I know my destination. Here I am right now, and this is where I want to go. And, and we we drive with intention. We're going to eventually arrive there. It doesn't mean there won't be potholes and diversions and roadblocks and roadworks along the way, but we will ultimately get to our destination. If we don't have that roadmap, we just drive around in circles and we get worn out and, and tired and burnt out. We run out of fuel because we we're, we're putting all the energy in, but we have no idea of, of where we want to end up. So having a why, sitting down and really reflecting on your own and thinking, wait on, where am I? Let's just have a bit of a debrief, bit of a reset. Where am I? Where do I want to be in my life? And 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 how am I going to get there? It's so incredibly important to have some form of why in your life. And if you can align that why with a dedication to resilience, our ability to endure, bounce back and be better, I think that's the most important thing in the whole wide world. You mentioned that maybe we're not going through a struggle right now. No, maybe you're not. But it's an unavoidable element of the human experience. So you will at some point go through a struggle, but that's not what resilience, resilience in my opinion, is not just for us to get through bad times, to get through plane crashes and paraplegic diagnosis. It's to actually go out and fuel adventure and success. Like resilience was a crucial element in the round the world flight. If you want to build a business, if you want to go out and start a non-for-profit, if you want to go on an adventure and climb a mountain, if you want to pursue those massive dreams in your life that fuel your why, if you want to go out there and live incredibly, you're going to have to be resilient because life is, is, is full of challenges every day, especially those big undertakings that we, that we 
uh, set off on with the best of intentions, they will also bring turbulence. Like you will also have to be resilient to get through that. I believe resilience is a foundational element of life. Life is one and lost mm. above the shoulders. So building that is so incredibly crucial. It's a learned and refined skill. We're not born resilient. We become resilient. Uh, that for me is just so incredibly important. Be resilient, align it with a why, know where you are, know where you're going, and you have the very best chance of getting there. And then ultimately, enjoy the journey. Don't go a million miles an hour every day and burn yourself out. Stop every now and then and realize that you have to step back in order to show it better. How do we do it? Identify your own pink Cadillac. Work out what fuels you, what brings you joy, what makes you smile, and implement, prioritize it. Put it in your every day. One final thing, one final question I'd like to ask you if that's okay. If you could go back in time and tell yourself anything, what would it be and where would you go? Gosh, I wouldn't change anything. Well, I think of that answer, I wouldn't change what's happened to me. I would love to change the outcomes of, of the accident if I could, but I understand that that's not how life works and that's a, a dark rabbit hole to go down. So everyone always says, would you change it if you could? Well, you can't change it, so why even go down that road? I would go back to probably a 14-year-old me and I would try and tell myself and make myself realize that life is hard. So it is tough. And I think we see a massive decline in mental health in young people. And, and you know, we, we have this belief because of social media in the world out there that it's so easy for everyone else. So why is it hard for me? I would make myself realize at a young age that it's tough for everyone. Mm-hmm. Adversity is a byproduct of breathing. So start to build those resilience skills from the get-go. Start to build a thick skin start to be tougher to become turbulence tough as we say and be proud of it be really proud of your ability to get up and to say not today you know that this this is not going to beat me because yes it helps in the plane crash moments of life but it's what allows us to go out and be be bold and brave and do the most incredible fun adventurous things and to work hard and to book that vacation and to you know to do some good in the world with the stuff that you're doing here just with this podcast. Resilience is the foundation of everything. If I could really help a young version of Ryan understand that, I think that maybe the journeys that I've been on would have been a little bit easier. It's been a, a long, painful journey to, to get to that reason. Ryan, thank you. It has been amazing talking to you. I've loved it and I could continue for hours, but I, I have to let you go, unfortunately. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing. Like sharing your story I like I said before I don't I can't even imagine how hard that is to kind of keep sharing but I understand why you do it I understand that it's part of helping other people learn from your experience as well but thank you for doing that the mindset matters podcast is not for profit supporting blue mental health UK's resilience program for young people Each time you listen to an episode, you're helping teens and young adults benefit from getting the support they need to become more resilient. You can discover more about the Bloom programme and their impact at mentalhealth-uk.org. Ryan's story is a contrast of highs and lows, but his focus remains constant throughout. The biggest point that struck me was Ryan taking time to invest in the feeling of joy. So as Ryan has already asked you, what's your pink Cadillac? I like to think of a pink Cadillac as not just a physical object, but anything in life that brings you joy. That could be spending quality time with friends and family, 
taking time out each week for your favorite hobby, or yes, even buying a ridiculous pink Cadillac. For me, my pink Cadillac is probably having the time to mooch around and do nothing with my family and just enjoy being in the moment together. It's a great lesson to take from Ryan that investing in your own happiness isn't a selfish act, but instead completes your puzzle and makes us all stronger and more resilient. It's an act of recharging yourself, of investing in your future self. So take the time to think about your version of a pink Cadillac and think about how you can prioritize joy in your life. Another takeaway I had from Ryan's mindset was his belief in finding more positives than negatives in life. He's not shying away from the negatives that will inevitably be there, but he's looking for balance and ideally more good than bad. And this means looking for opportunities and looking for challenges, as that's the only way you can grow your resilience. And through these challenges, looking for the positives by seeing what you have already achieved gives you the belief in what you can achieve in the future. If you've been inspired by Ryan's story today and want to invest in your own mindset, check out the Mindset Matters Hub, where you can access evidence-based strategies to build your resilience and help you to thrive in life.